Good morning again, and uh, just want to tell you, there's no notes in your pamphlet. That, that wasn't an accident, just so you know. That was, it was cut trees down or put notes in the, in the bulletin. I chose cut trees down, okay, because that needed to be done. So that's why we don't have notes in there today. I just want to let you know, there's still points. If you've got a pen, you can write them down. That's up to you. Uh, I'm not a big fan of them myself anyway, because I watch 90% of you throw it in the trash either here or somewhere else when you leave. So I'm not, a, I'm not the biggest fan of notes anyway, uh, because I think if you're going to write something down, you're going to write it down anyway, and you're going to write it down somewhere important and keep it. So today we're going to begin an in-depth study into the book of James. We're going to start by looking at verse 1. The introduction to the letter. Because we know that all scripture is inspired word of God, we can learn a lot from the greeting. You see, James' introduction identifies the theme and tone of the entire, the entire letter. And I promise you, I promise you, I will not be doing it one verse a week. Until we're through with the book of James. Although it did cross my mind. Because I would be knowing what I was preaching about for the next two years. Because there's 108 verses. So actually it would be just a little over two years. I would know what I was preaching on and so would you. So I contemplated it. But I'm not going to do that. This letter is a highly practical letter to Christians in the early church. You see, this letter was written to Jewish people, really, again, that had just found Christ, and it was some instruction on how to live a Christian life. So, it is rich in theology. It's Perhaps even more than any other book in the New Testament, it's rich with theology. And how we should be living our lives as Christians. See, James emphasizes the applications of our Christian belief. That is why this sermon series is called A Portrait of Living, a Living Faith. Because we're supposed to live out our faith. That's why we're going to get to, in a few weeks... The controversy, well, well, it's going to be more than a few weeks, but in, a, in, in some time, we're going to get to the controversial virtual, uh, text where he says, without works, there is no faith. Because James believed, as of I do, without works, you have no faith. And without faith... You can have no works. So, this book, and you might not be able to read the dates, because I can't really either. So, and, but it was written between 45 and 60 AD. Most writers think it was written, most, or, most uh, people think it was one of the first books, the first text to be written. 
There, they go with the 45, 46 AD era is when the book of James was written. Some, very few scholars, think it was an argument back at uh, um, Paul because Paul says you're saved by faith and faith alone. And it, it doesn't even have that because the problem with that, that saying that is that James doesn't believe that himself. James just believes that if you have faith in Christ, works are naturally going to follow. If you have faith in Christ, you can't help but be different and do works. So it, it, I go with the early age of this book and going with, it was probably one of the first New Testament books to be written down. And we know it wasn't James, the son of uh, Zebedee, that wrote it because he was martyred before the book was written. You can't write a book if you're dead. So, that's how we know that James wrote this book. So, let's dig in to one verse. James a servant of God and of the Lord Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. So, first of all, he's named himself. He's James. And secondly, he said, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, he wrote this to the 12 tribes that were, that were out there from, from, from when the Babylonians and all the, the, they were conquered and they're spread now throughout the world. So, so Simon, who got stoned to death, had been only preaching to Jewish people. So he'd gone out and spread the word a little ways before he got stoned. So he'd started this taking the gospel to Jewish people, and he, would only t he only took it to Jewish people before he got stoned, okay? Uh, and so, so now James is in Jerusalem writing this letter, sending this letter out to all the tribes so they can hear about Jesus, so they can find out who Jesus is and follow Jesus and know how to live a life that is saturated with Jesus. So, James, the half-brother of Jesus. We need to clear this up. Because there's four positions. I'm going to tell you three of them. The first one is that James, Joseph was married before Mary. And had four kids, obviously, because he's got... He got four kids, right? The, the other one is that they're his cousins. Both of those, both of those were, the ideas were founded by the Catholic Church because they insisted that Mary was a virgin her whole life. That's B, S. And I'll tell you why. Because was Mary a godly woman? Would you say Mary was a godly woman? 
Okay? She was married to Joseph. Okay? How many children are in there? Okay, God, in the beginning, when he created man and woman, he said, the two shall become one. Use your imagination what that two become one means. Okay? So if Mary was a godly woman and didn't consummate the marriage at some point, she would have not been a godly woman. Unless there was a medical reason that she could not have sex, she would have actually not been obeying the law of the Bible that she believed in. So that's the problem. Now, she was a virgin when she got pregnant. She would have been a virgin until she had Jesus, and then they would have had their honeymoon. Okay? What happens on a honeymoon? And then they had at least four boys and some girls. Okay? So Mary had some children. Okay? So Jesus had four brothers that we know of, and we see this in Matthew 13, 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simeon, and Judas? Mark 6, 3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and jo- Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Galatians 1.19 But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. That's Paul writing that. James, the Lord's brother. And you see, do you know what's funny? James did not become a believer of his brother until after the resurrection. He grew up with Jesus. He did not follow Jesus. He had heard what Jesus had said. He would listened to what Jesus had said. But this is what Mark 3.21 says. And when his family heard it, that's heard it means what Jesus was preaching and teaching, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And John 7, 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And then, 1 Corinthians fifteen seven says this, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. He went straight to his brother. He said, look, I'm going to prove to you. Do you know why? How many people have siblings in here? Okay. How many people in here were were like the black sheep of the family? Okay. You're going to get this better than anybody. Because I get this. My brother, not my youngest brother, my half-brother was just like me. But my, my, uh, my, from my dad and my mom, my youngest brother, could not do no wrong at all. He was perfect. And now if he'd come to me 
and said to me, I'm the Messiah, I would not believe him. Because mommy thinks he's perfect and the kid never makes a mistake. There would be a little sibling rivalry going on, wouldn't there? If you grew up with somebody telling you they were Jesus, you know, they didn't believe him. He had to die for them to believe him. But that's a powerful way to meet Jesus, isn't it? Really, when you think about it, he grew up with Jesus. And then suddenly Jesus is walking the wilderness and walking around town to town preaching this message that they think he's out of his mind preaching and saying stuff he shouldn't be saying. They were going to lock him up in his room for what he was saying. You see, it'd be hard to convince your sibling that you were the Christ, the Son of God. I'm sure they had their ideas how mummy got pregnant or how this child popped around. I'm sure there was things going in their head, obviously because they didn't believe he was actually the Messiah. I'm sure they didn't probably believe the story if it was ever told to them that their, 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 their mum was a virgin and just got pregnant by God. I mean, that's how they're going to cover this one up? I mean, really? Think about it. But Jesus was his biological... Mary and Jesus... I mean, Joseph... uh, James and Jesus had the same mum, Mary. Half the blood flowing through through Jesus is the same as the blood flowing through... uh, the genetics flowing through his brother James... That's important to know. And we know that James must have heard his brother, especially the Sermon on the Mount, because basically you could take the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount and they are very similar in many ways. Very similar in many ways. James was fully submitted to Christ. Do you know how we know that? Just from that first bit of text? Because he says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, hey, James, the brother of Jesus, like we would do. Hey, if you're looking for a job and you know somebody who owns a nice business and he's your family member, when you go there, you throw his name out, don't you? Hey, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the boss's son. I'm the boss's son. Can you give me a job? I'm the boss's brother. The boss is going to hire me. And then you go around, because I don't care if you say no. Then you go around acting like you're high on your horse because you are related to the boss. But James... He is God's brother. And he doesn't mention it. He actually says, no, I'm a servant to him. Do you know what else is amazing about that first bit of text? 
He was Jewish, obviously. And he was writing to who? Jewish people. There's two parts of the Trinity right there. He equates God and Jesus equally in that text. And if he doesn't outright say it in the rest of the book, he talks about the Holy Spirit too. So he mentions in his book, the Trinity, he's writing to Jewish people who thought there was one God. And James is saying, look, there's two right there. There's two right there. I'm writing to you to inform you you're wrong. That's how the letter starts. He wants people to know, he wants people to know that, that his brother, but without saying it, and the reason he just says James, you know why he starts with his name there? Because obviously he's well known, so he's going to use his name. Because not every letter was informed, with, just titled with the name, but he titles this with his name, but leaves out the part that he's Jesus' half-brother. Or Jesus' brother. Because he wanted people to understand that he isn't, he doesn't take that. He takes, he's a servant. And if you can't get that and put your name in there, whether it's Ed, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll never be able to follow Jesus like the book of James asks you to follow Jesus. It starts there. You have to be a servant to God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, or your life is going to suck. That's basically, you see, I could have preached the whole book of James in one lesson, but it wouldn't have been as fun. So it's basically saying, right, if you don't follow God, if you don't love God, if you're not fully committed to Him, Probably nothing else I'm saying the rest of this book is going to make any sense to you. It's not going to make any sense to you at all. Because you have to be fully submitted to Christ. I actually love the fact that Jesus is my Savior, but I hate the fact that we just tell people He's your Savior. And we forget to mention he's got to be your Lord too. When we witness to people, we leave out the fact that, by the way, it's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. You're going to have to give up your world. You're going to have to give up the world because that's your master, by the way. You think if, you don't, if you're not deeply following Jesus, there's loads of people that are out there that say they believe in Jesus but are not. He's not their Lord. They haven't submitted to Christ. They're still living in the world. Following the world's way. Every sin, and I struggle with sin. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Not me struggling with sin, but everybody struggles with sin. We all struggle with sin, okay? So I'm not saying we have to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. But we better not be stale. 
We better not be stagnant. We better not be the same way we were a week ago. Because every day we should be submitting more of our life to following him. Everything we struggle with, by the way, everything we struggle with is because of one thing. Because we're not submitted to Christ. Whatever that addiction is you have, whatever that problem you have, that whatever that issue is that you suffer with, guess what? It's because you haven't submitted to God. You want to hold on to that. You say, I want that piece of, of, of the world. Not that I'm trying to dig at anybody here, because we had a prayer for smoking. The answer to that, it's, it, it's easy. It's submit it to God. Say, I don't want that. I want more of you, God, and less of that. So every time you want to do that sinful thing, you do something for God. Whether it's, well, you can put it there, food. I use food. But if I submit myself to Christ and go to Him to comfort me, I'm not going to go to food to comfort me. I'm not saying because food's good and you have to eat. That's the problem with when you're addicted to food. You still have to eat. If you're addicted to alcohol, until you submit and say, you're not going to be my master over my life anymore, you can't quit. Anytime we struggle with an addiction of any kind, it's because we haven't fully submitted it, fully handed it over to God. We want to hold on to it. We want to cling to that last bit of the world, thinking that's going to save us. Because really, why do we do the things we do? I can tell you why I eat, because I think that's going to comfort me. And it's addiction that was implanted in me as a child. It's not my mum's fault, it's my fault because I'm an adult now and I should be adulting the situation and I should be conquering it by giving it to Jesus and saying, look, I don't need this to comfort me anymore, God. I want to be fully committed to you and I want you to fill me. I want you to be the one that takes care of me. I don't need to do that to feel good about myself. Because we all think we need to do something to make us feel better or look better. But the problem is, God created you just the way you are. You should look in the mirror and go, God created a masterpiece. I don't need to do anything. Because this is how he wants me to look. He created me and he's the... Do you, how many people say God makes mistakes? No hands? How come there's plastic surgeons in the world then that Christians go to? I'm just asking, if God doesn't make any mistakes, okay? Even, by the way, even if you've been in an accident, because God ordained it. I'm just saying, when you really get to the point... God created us. We are masterpieces. He doesn't make mistakes. 
We make mistakes. He doesn't. There's things that we could change. Our eating habits, our, our addictions in other ways, smoking, drinking, whatever it is. Our exercise routine. All them things, yes, we have control over. He's given us the ability to have control. If we take it from Satan or the evil in our body, because we don't need Satan, the evil sin nature that lives inside of me, that wants to hold on to the world. But, but if you do that, you're not submitted to Christ. You've got to fully submit your lives to Christ, just as James did. If you want to live for him. There's three major themes that we're going to be talking about. God knows the hairs on your head. He can actually tell you how many there are or aren't, depending on your hair situation. He knows all the days that he has ordained for you. We were talking about my dad. I actually thought I was going to get a call last night. That's how bad he looked last night, yesterday. Shelly will tell you the same thing. She's in the nursery with my granddaughter. And I would say, if, if he, my, I said, I think a couple of weeks. My wife said, I don't know about a couple of weeks, the way he's going. I mean, he's ashy. He's looking there. God knows when he's going to die. Guess what? I don't. I don't. I don't. I'll be glad when he does, by the way. I'll be happy. It'll be... It'll be I'll be ecstatic. I'll be sad to do his funeral. I'll be emotional more than sad. But I'll be happy when he dies. Because his life, existence right now, sucks. And when, he's, when he dies, he's going to be able to fully use his leg that he's not been able to use since he was like 20. I think that's awesome. I look at what's going to happen to him after he dies. Not what happens to him now. I just want him to go to sleep and not wake up. And it'll be a good day. It'll be a good day for me. And a brilliant day for him. When Jesus comes, gets him and picks him up by the hand and leads him to the, to the, to the gates and takes him in heaven, because that's what I believe that happens. My personal belief is that Jesus says he's making a room for us and he's going to come get you. So I actually believe he's going to come down. When, when you die, I think Jesus comes down and takes you up to heaven. He's like your top tour guide. That's, that, I just get that. It might not be true. I'm holding on to it. It's my belief. I believe that Jesus is going to walk me to the gates of heaven and show me where my room is. And, and that is a good thing for me to think about. That he's going to do that one day soon for my dad. Because he knows every day. He has to live every day. I have to live and every day you have to live. In fact, he put those very days together for you so you might just walk in the fullness of joy. You see, bringing the greatness and glory of God. I love, I love creeds and catechisms. I love them. I think they're really good because they taught basic Christianity back 
when lots of people couldn't read and you had to take uh, things. And I wasn't around in them days. I read them now as an adult because I didn't get saved till I was 33. Didn't even know about catechisms and creeds till I was probably 40. So uh, I've, got, I've got books with them and I've got a big book with all of them in because that's how much I love them and I read them. So in the, the Westminster Larger Catechism, the first question, the first question is, what, because it's a question, it's pretty, pretty amazing. You should read one one day. It's a question, and they give you an answer, and then they give you scripture verses to back it up. Gotta love that. What's the chief and highest end of man? And anytime they say man, it's man and woman, by the way. It's mankind. And the answer to that question is, man's chief end and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy Him forever. See, I love that. The first time I read that quote, and the first time I was reading John Piper, and the book's Desiring God. It's probably the best book I've ever read outside of the Bible. Uh, very big, thick book, and takes you a long time to read it. And it's, 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 it's called The Pursuit, I think. I, I'm, the subheading is, somehow says pursuit, but I don't know if the word's pursuit of Christian hedonism. And he gets Christian hedonism out of, this, out, of, out of that answer. Because God wants you to be happy. And hedonism is about making yourself happy. Hedonism, though, is getting it any way you can. Doesn't matter who you hurt. But Christian hedonism is doing it to the glory of God. Think about that. So everything you do, you do to the glory of God. Okay, everything. Good, bad, whatever. You're supposed to do all things to the glory of God. See, you see, the sovereign king of glory is not a taker. He's a giver. See, all the things that we've twisted and made evil, he originally created for good. Take sex, for instance. We're grown adults here. He invented it. It wasn't like, by the way, and he made the pleasurable bits of it, by the way. See, it wasn't like the devil snuck in and put some extra bits on the woman and extra bits on the man to make him feel better and her to feel better. When they were having sex. Okay. He did that. But people say God's a killjoy. He just has a way you're supposed to do it. Like you're supposed to be married. One. When you do it. You see. We just, we just think. Well if we have multiple millions of partners. We'll be happy. And there's only. There's only disaster comes there, by the way. Food. He invented food. The garden probably, I mean, it would have had the most delicious food that you could have ever tried. You could imagine the best food that you like, and the food in the garden was better, and the food in heaven's going to even be better. Okay? He invented that. We made it a problem. Because we can take anything good, anything good, you name it, and we can make a sin out of it. We're good. 
By now we're professional sinners. We've been sinning long enough that we don't need no encouragement from no little demon sitting on my shoulder telling me what I should or shouldn't do. And the good angel sitting there telling me what I should do. I always think of the Tom and Jerry cartoons. And, and, and we don't need that. Because we've got enough evil inside of us, we can make up, we can, we can find ways to sin. We can find ways to sin. But we can do everything to his glory. God wants to lead us into the fullest possible life. And he does this by revealing to us finite creatures who he is. You see, God is so about God that the whole Bible is about, guess what? God. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. That's the first foremost reason that the Bible exists. To tell you and me about who God is and what he's about. And if you want the fullest possible life, hey, try living like he suggests, seeing he's the one who created you. Try not try doing it on your own and making up your own rules. See, God in his own words, makes known to, his, to us the path to life in him. All the shall nots and the shalls are God trying to lead you to something more beautiful that is going to bring you more joy, more joy than you could ever dream of. Any ideas that bring you joy? More. He's got more for you. You're just filling them with piddly stuff. See, salvation and obedience are two of the ways our God draws us closer into the fullest life possible. This is why, Jesus, this is why James wrote this book. To encourage us as Christians in increasingly hostile. We live in a hostile world, world against Christians. Okay? And a broken world. To live out our lives fully dependent on God. And not give ourselves over to the presumed comforts of this world. See, we think, oh, if I have that, I'll be happy. If I have that, I'll I can tell you. I've tried different stuff throughout my life. And God's the only one who's fulfilled me. Ever. Ever. I love my wife. Jesus fulfills me more than she could ever fulfill me. See, if I, if, if I think that, that Shelley is my all in all, which I used to think, by the way, before I became Christian, that's why I use her as an example. Uh, I thought she was my all in all. But imagine that I lost her. What would that do to me? I really believe that my wife, my children, my grandchildren, they're just gifts from God. And the fact is, they're not even mine. They're not a gift that he gave me. They're a gift that he's loaning me. It's like if you loaned me your car, but you want it back. One day, God's going to call me back first, or he's going to call some of them back first. 
But I was just, do you know what he did? He told me this. He said, and he told, tells you the same thing. I'm giving you this to take care of. I want you to take care of it like I would take care of it. I want you to respect it like I would respect it. I want you to love it like I would love it. But one day, one day, I'm going to take it back. Jackie's aunt just passed away. Jackie's blessed, by the way. Not because her aunt passed away. She's blessed because her aunt's in heaven. But she's blessed because she got to know, have a wonderful aunt that was like a second mom to her. Okay? That was a gift that she had on loan. And guess what? God says, I want her back now. I'm sorry, but I need her more than you need her right now. That's what God does when he takes people. He, he's saying, look, I'm going to take them. I want them more than, I want them back, so they're coming back with me. And, and that, that's a happy thing for me. That, with my dad, that's what I know. I had a dad, I've got a dad. When he dies, God's just taking him back. He loaned me him for, for a little bit, and now he gets to take him home and calls him home. And I, he was just on loan to me. I look at everybody in my life and everything I own like that. It's a principle to live for because then you know what? If somebody steals somebody of yours, guess what? It's not mine. It was God's. You stole from God, not me. If, if, if somebody uh, smashes your car, you go, uh, Jody, Jody says, I haven't even made a payment on my car yet and it gets smashed. I said, I, I, I didn't even make a payment I drove my car for exactly a week, and it's the first new car I bought, and the pebble went through the, the screen. So, and I, said, I, I was upset, by the way, and I'm driving, and then I said to Shelly, I said, you know, this isn't my car anyway. Do you know what that did? Stopped me parking way out the car park. You get a ding in my car. I've got dings around it all the way now, like little scratches on it. It ain't my car. Can't take it with me. God might call me home before it breaks down. So you, you, it's not mine. It's not mine. I was on loan for it. I take care of it. I do everything I'm supposed to do to keep it running. But if, if you want, if, if, you, if you, for instance, if you buy a car and you expect it never to get scratched, don't buy a car. And if your happiness is in that car, don't buy a car. So first, his book is about trials, suffering, and difficulty, and can be expected. Can be expected. Nobody lives a life without trials, suffering, and difficulty. They do not take your God by surprise. They're not going to take God by surprise. They might take you by surprise, but they're not going to take God by surprise. Everything we go through is to, God allows. See, here's the thing. God allowed my father-in-law to die. He didn't cause my father-in-law to die. He allowed my father-in-law to die. Do you know why he allowed him to die? Because he knew that I was going to go to his funeral and meet Jesus. He knew that's where Jesus was going to, that, that's where I wasn't playing hide and seek anymore. Jesus found me and that's where Jesus found me. So he allowed it to happen. I don't think God causes bad things to happen. But we live in a broken world. 
we, we live in a broken world, and he allows stuff to happen. And he allows stuff to happen to us so we can learn from it, so he can reach us. That is why he is a loving God. See, we grow up and we want to protect our children, don't we? We want our children not to get hurt and do all these things and think we're protecting them. And we end up enabling them to do even worse things. And instead of just allowing them to get hurt and pay the consequences and maybe hit their bottom. See, and secondly, the Christian life is about progress, not perfection. So the book of James is telling us how we should be moving forward as Christians. We should, be, we should be looking at this and going, hey, I'm doing some of these things now that I wasn't doing. I'm getting better at this than I were getting better, than I were. You see, this is, this is what the book is about. It, and the whole Bible is about that, by the way. Progress, not perfection. You're going to die before you be perfect. You're going to die before you're perfect. So perfection isn't the goal. But progress is definitely a goal. If you're not moving forward, you need to do something different. And finally, riches and comfort will not satisfy the soul. All that I've said will not make you happy. Because here's the thing. As soon as you drive that car off the car park, it's worth less than what you paid for it. It's worth less than what you paid for. That's why they sell gap insurance. If you want a boat, because your neighbor's got a boat, then your neighbor neighbor gets a boat, and his boat's bigger than your boat. Now you want a bigger boat, because your neighbor's got a bigger boat, because the boat's going to make you happier. See, nothing we do will fill the hole that is Jesus-shaped. But we, even though we say we follow Jesus, we still do it. We're all guilty of this. And this is why this book is so good for today. So good to work through because it tells us how to live a practical life. Following Jesus, we're going to make mistakes. Again, it's not perfection. It's not, it's not perfection, it's progress. Let's work on that. Not perfection, progress. Not perfection, progress. If you want to get, take anything from this sermon today, remember that. Not perfection, but progress. You should write that on your mirror in some lipstick. Or maybe a sticky note. Because it's easier to clean. Okay? So next week, see, I told you we weren't going to do one verse next week. We're going to do from 2 to 12, okay? So we're going to do 11 verses next week. So, and we're going to talk about the trials of life because that's how he starts his book. Isn't that beautiful? He starts out with struggles and trials. And you've got to remember when he was writing this, the church was being persecuted. It wasn't a good place to be a Christian. So, I think he'll have some good advice for us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are an amazing God. That you love us. You love us the same now as you're always going to love us. But you love us so much 
that you don't want to leave us that way. You want to you want to change us. You want to make us the version of us that you had created us to be. I hope as we study the book of James that we can learn to submit our lives to you as James submitted his life to you. That we can surrender it all to you. Not just on a Sunday for a couple hours, but every day of the week, 24-7. We can give our lives, our hearts, our souls to you, God. Because if we really want to find joy and happiness, that is what we need to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.